Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we are exploring a topic that is much more interesting than the place where I first heard about it, which was in the context of cryptocurrency. <laughs> no. Which like, comes up for me more often than I would like uh, because of my work, day job work. Yeah, actually, it came up for me recently in my day job work what? because I was I was working on researching tardigrades, and so I entered I entered the Wait, is for, it like tardigrade coin? No, 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 itty itty bitty Bitcoin. No, I entered cryptozoa as a search term because that is what tardigrades are. They're tiny. Yeah, they're uh, they are uh, hidden they're, hidden life. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's like a a, a crypto forum. So. All the hits, instead of being helpful for my research for work, were just like tweets from crypto bros with bad takes. So I'm glad this uh-huh. week's thing is not that. What are we what are we talking about? Okay, so we're actually talking about cargo cults. Um, and so I, I guess I'll, I'll save the cryptocurrency connection for the end um, to sort of Great. give you, Anna, time to recover and also to sort of... <laughs> To sort right, of we give should... every give everybody an example of what it is versus what yeah, it what isn't. it actually is, yeah. Um, because this is something that I'm I'm asking you, dear listener, um, to listen to this entire episode. Like, don't listen to like the first half of it on your commute, and then like go around the office being like, "I heard something today on a podcast." Because nope. there's like, we're going bad takes first. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> we're we're sort of going through sort of the the history of the concept as it's understood by um, anthropologists in the global north and like wider public consciousness. Um, so don't don't tell people you learned something from a podcast if you're taking it from the first half of the episode. Yep. So please do, <laughs> and please um, don't get out your tweets. Uh, Not until- yet the end just so um hold your thumbs yeah so this is this is this has a narrative arc mm, um we're storytellers we are storytellers um so cargo cult uh is a term that first shows up in media um hmm. after 1945 and anna what happened in 1945 our Southern California beat Tennessee in the 31st Rose Bowl. You did not also, know that. <laughs> also, World War II ended. That one I knew. Okay. That one. I, not, not the football I one. don't follow football. No. <laughs> I look so, it up online. So did you go to like Wikipedia and be like, No, I went to onthisday.com. <laughs> but I did start with a Google search of what happened in 1945. Ah, Surprisingly, okay. most of the hits were... Just World War Two ended. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, well, 
great. Um, so that's so, the one that that's pertinent okay, here. That's the one that's ended. relevant to what we're yeah. discussing today. So cargo cults are an example of the larger cultural phenomenon of messianic movements. So these are groups <laughs> that are devoted to the worship of a particular person, um, sometimes like a, a vague sort of abstract identity like America, um, mm-hmm. that they consider to be a savior. So the Messiah. Yeah. Messianic. Yeah, and Messiah. So during World War II, Allied and Japanese soldiers occupied many islands in the greater Pacific world, specifically the South Pacific, um, as bases for battles in the Pacific. So often soldiers would airdrop in and also airdrop supplies, which for a culture that had never seen aircraft before um, would have made a serious impression that you've got planes dropping stuff. Mm. Um, so tied up in all of that is the trauma of being suddenly plunged into a war zone or having a war, a war that zone. you didn't really have a stake in necessarily. Yeah, but you like have you suffer losses so yes, like a, exactly. a, something in which you are not um you are not a belligerent but you are a casualty mm, um mm, and so having well a war thank you having a a war kind of envelop you uh combined with previous and ongoing centuries of colonial oppression and ideologies imposed upon them by christian missionaries so it's a really like muddy complicated soup of factors of abuse and extraction and misrepresentation um, that uh, created a very fascinating belief system. Um, And for a long time, I thought it like wasn't a thing because I had only heard cargo cult as a um, like in non-anthropological contexts. Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was something that was, um, was, was kind of like made up. I'll tell you like what it made me think of is this like, you know, mid nineties, like window screensaver, Johnny Castaway, who's this little cartoon dude who is a castaway on an Island. And like, he does various things and it's like also kind of a game. Um, hmm. and there were like these, the, all of these Never sort of like heard of or seen that before. All of the, the, these like it was, you know, like 16 bit or so. It was like very like sure. low, like low quality. But it was something that, um, you know, we didn't have video games in my house. Um, but when my brother had a computer, he got the like Johnny Castaway uh, screensaver. But he so Johnny Castaway does various island things. And like mm-hmm. sometimes there's like sometimes he'll be like doing smoke signals when there's like a speedboat of like babes like going by in the background. And sometimes he does like a little dance to make it rain. And there's a lot of stuff that's like very racist. Um, and there's also sure. a lot of stuff that's just like weird. Um, and yeah, there's one okay. time that he like, you like sometimes you see his origin story. It's all like completely randomized. It's, I don't know that much about it, but I oh, thought odd. it was one of those things. Okay. Like one of those kind of um, just kind of like, made up things about an exotic place you know where you've got like the island natives or something like the yeah. primitive islanders like i didn't think that it like was you're picturing like a pulp poster from the yeah. 40s like yeah like kind of like that, the volcano like the virgin in the volcano this style. exact same thing this this yep. 
this podcast is nothing if not a years long endeavor for me to figure out why I think certain things about the Pacific are a thing um, or, or aren't a thing in this in, this in case, that case it is a thing not a thing in a, this case a thing yes um, so that's sort of where I was coming from just this place of like interesting ignorance <laughs> and just being okay. like I think that this is just a racism um but I mean it's not not that I know it's not ju- and that's but it's not just of, a racism yeah 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 so um to to start out um I did this I I um I outlined this in like specific parts so Part for the first, contextualizing cargo cults. So here I'm going to quote from the Cambridge Encyclopedia of Anthropology on the entry cargo cults. <laughs> yes, by Montlinstrom, who appears to be a bit of an expert. I guess, yeah. Certainly she, somebody she who has to be like written the guy. a lot about it. Yeah. 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 <clears throat> so he's, at, he's here in Tulsa. The modal cargo cult was an agitation or organized social movement of Melanesian villagers in pursuit of cargo by means of renewed or invented ritual action that they hoped would induce ancestral spirits or other powerful beings to provide. Ethnographers suggested that cargo was often Western commercial goods and money, but it could also signify moral salvation, existential respect, or proto-nationalistic anti-colonial desire for political autonomy, end quote. So let's do some contextualizing. (laughs) First of all, uh, from that definition, Melanesia uh, refers to a subregion of the massive area of Pacific Islands known as Oceania. It's big. Yeah. And so, um, oh Melanesia, gosh, I, sh- sorry. I should have gotten, I should have pulled some information on this that like, um, Melanesia, Polynesia and Micronesia oh, yeah. are the like regions and those regions, the names for those regions have their roots in like race science. Yes. I, yep. So yeah, it's some guy who assigned these names based on. Yeah. yeah I so, remember it's okay. I don't. Yeah. So I don't know. It is used, but I don't think it is used by the it's community. It's not an endonym. Yeah. So like just context. Um, so, um, so this region extends from New Guinea in the West to Tonga in the East. Uh, so the region includes four independent countries, which are Fiji, Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, and Papua New Guinea. Um, it also includes the French colonial collectivity of New Caledonia and parts of Indonesia. So notably the provinces of Papua and West Papua, because they're on the same island as Papua mm-hmm. New Guinea. Yeah. And <laughs> I found the guy. You found the guy? You found, the, found guy the guy that... Yeah. So the name... This is from Wikipedia. The name Melanesia in French, Melanesie, thank you, Wikipedia, was first used in 1832 by French navigator Jules Dumont d'Urville. D'Urville? He coined the terms Melanesia and Micronesia along with the pre-existing Polynesia to designate what he viewed as the three main ethnic and geographical regions forming the Pacific. Great. Yep. So that guy. Merci, Wikipedia. Um, yeah. So as you may have gotten (laughs) from the last few minutes, um, 
all of these places were heavily colonized and exploited. Um, so from around the 1700s onward through long time now, still are being still are being in, um, economic ways, which is like, see also Fiji water, um, or, um, one of these States I think has like, is like getting involved in like Bitcoin mining or something like something Mm. like other, like other, um, like economic exploits and also just um, they are not autonomous states as in the case right. of New Caledonia. Um, so just keep that in mind, please, mm-hmm. please. Uh, just in general, but also through this episode. Uh, so a second major part of the picture is the use of many of these islands as military outposts in the Pacific theater portion of world war ii i mean that's the term for it it's, i know I, yeah a- i i did not go to the the museum of the pacific theater when i was on vacation um oh. even though i was in it that same town it's like a smithsonian I mean, yeah. and then i was just like no thank you bummer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because admiral nimitz the guy in charge of the u.s pacific fleet whatever yep. during world war ii is from Fredericksburg, Texas. So if you want to go back in time and dox me, I was there. Um, <laughs> I don't. So let's, let's. But that's that's why that museum yep. is there. Um, yep. Okay. So this is from the Wikipedia entry for the Pacific Theater. Quote. The Pacific War saw the Allies pitted against Japan, the latter aided by Thailand, and to a lesser extent by the Axis Allies, Germany, and Italy. Fighting consisted of some of the largest naval battles in history and incredibly fierce battles and war crimes across Asia and the Pacific Islands, resulting in immense loss of human life. The war culminated in massive Allied air raids over Japan and the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. End quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, as you might already know, listeners, the presence of the U.S. Army and other allied forces in some of these places had major cultural effects that persist to this day. Um, um, one example of this, um, which like not relevant to um, not relevant to cargo cults, but yeah, but maybe but relevant recognizable. to the Pacific Islands. Yeah. Um, that is sort of a holdover from World War II um, is the uh, popularity um on the Hawaiian Islands and subsequently Japan and other parts of South Asia of spam. Um, spam. Which, be. yeah. So that product traveled there as part of the U S military, U S army's military rations. Um, and also when the like, um, indigenous food systems were disrupted and, um, people were not able to get the, uh, the sort of raw ingredients to make foods in there, like traditional cuisine, uh, spam became popular because became it was available. The protein, yeah. And it was cheap uh, mm-hmm. because it was subsidized. Its presence was subsidized. Um, so that's an example of, yeah. of what's what's going on here. Um, so we begin the interaction between um, what we'll call Melanesia um, mm-hmm. and, and sort of the Western, so specifically um, European... Uh, 
um, like U.S. American and Australian mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. world with exploitation via colonization. And we go from there to appropriation of these places for military engagements. Um, so from about the 18th century onward, it's pretty fraught and traumatic. And also we should mention that in addition to uh, being the sites of battles and military outposts, um, the Pacific was also the site of nuclear testing. Sure was. The and Bikini so, Atoll. Well, and, and also and um, the Marshall Islands. Mm-hmm. The Marshall Islands were a site of extensive um, nuclear testing. And I'm um, pretty sure there were people living on them. Well, and that is why uh, Marshall Islanders are like, are allowed to easily come to the U.S. It's like for, there are there's for medical a, treatment or just like, no to work. Sorry, sorry about that. Yeah, like it's it's a um, the word is definitely not reparations, no, but it's, it's sort a, of like a it's a gesture. It's like sort of like sure. an apologetic gesture that sure. it is. Um, there are. Uh, like the the immigration policy for folks from the Marshall Islands is um, quite friendly. Less difficult. Okay, cool. Um, and also like access to education. Mm. Um, in, at my my old my old role, like we had a, an advisor based in the Marshall Islands, and let me tell what a you, nice country we are. Getting her a flight to anywhere was so hard. <laughs> it was. <laughs> Um, but, but that's something else like to, to think about that, that it's more Mm -hmm. than just, um, so thinking about war and the effect of war on the Pacific islands is much more than, uh, conquest, colonization and like sites of, of conflict. There is sort of the development of war and weapons there and like utter environmental desolation. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's something to to keep in mind here. Um, so now that I've really mm-hmm. gotten the vibe up, Anna, mm. take us forward. I'm passing you the baton. Thank you. Take it. Thank you. I have Thank grasped you. the baton. Great. Now it's time for part the second, ye old-timey discussions. <laughs> Not that old-timey, no. sadly. Pretty recent. So anthropologists didn't come up with the term cargo cult, although they jumped on it pretty much right away. The phrase was coined in a negative sense. Um, The source that I used called it a calumny, which I think is a calumny. A calumny? Calumny? Yeah. Like a um, aspersion. What? It's a it's a jumped up word for like insult. Um, cool. In a 1945 article published in Pacific Islands Monthly, a colonial news magazine. Oh, what? Ooh. Like, it, like a new a magazine dedicated to colonial news? Yep. News from the colonies for colonists. So here's the. Oh, I've I've read a lot of that. Um, the Hawaii, the Honolulu Star Advertiser does a lot of stuff on my boy Wendell um, uh, in the 50s, and that. Uh-huh. It is a yep. colonial news. Same, I mean, same era. Same, yeah, yeah. Same vibe. So here's the relevant text from that article, uh, which was written by Dr. C. Heltker. I can only assume that C stands for colonial. I can think of something else. Yep. <laughs> so everybody ready? Because this guy sucks. Here we go. <laughs> Title. That's how how- I'm going to start every, <laughs> every lecture I ever give. 
How Cargo Cult is Born, The Scientific Angle on an Old Subject. Okay, so uh, the author of the article distinguishes four different groups of religious, and then the word they use here is fanatism. It's fanaticism, right? I see. I Is that a... Hmm. <laughs> it's either a word I don't know or a misprint. Fat, well, it's a word that uh, Google, Google also Google doesn't flag, know, but, but yeah. Google doesn't know. Google doesn't know how to spell what I want to spell. Okay. But yeah, fanatism. I saw that when I read it too. And I was just like, fanatism. The author of the article distinguishes four different groups of religious fanatism, whatever that is. One, purely religious movements, for example, mass conversions, recollections, village retreats, etc. Similar movements were often started among pagans who were untouched by any Christian influence. Again, 1945. Movements, so number two, sorry, movements instigated by influential pagan natives, sorcerers, oh. magicians, chiefs, in opposition to the imported Christian doctrine. These men call their clients together to fight a last desperate battle against the intrusion of Christianity. Naturally, their main objective is retention of prestige and income. Clout. Mm. They're posting for clout. Number three, purely political revolutions against the European race as such. For example, the rebellion of police boys in Astrolab Bay. <laughs> I don't know what police boys are. I didn't look it up. About 1900, three Europeans and one Chinese were killed. The revolution of native constables at Madang in 1942. The running amok of police boys, etc., etc. Yeah, this is rough. And lastly, religious political movements called religious madness, cargo cult, chiliasm, prophetism, native king movement, etc. So those are the four types. It is this last type of movement with which the author deals thoroughly, analyzing a great number of cases which happened during this last war. World War II. This last one. These, yeah, this, the last one. These cargo cult movements can be compared to that weed called horsetail, equisitum. Equisitum? Which is almost impossible to eradicate. It is cursed by all farmers. The roots penetrate the fertile soil to a depth of 15 feet and more. more. Although such religious tendencies in primitives represent a general problem arising from any clash between European and native culture, even missionaries are still inclined to regard them when they manifest themselves as single anomalies. Often, they are taken by surprise and cannot apply any successful remedy. As a last resource, an appeal is usually made to the government, and by the force of the law, some of the responsible prophets are put in jail or sent into exile, and the movement seems to have come to an end. However, this attitude paralyzes the religious mania only for the time being, and like the horsetail weed, it will rise again. End quote. Thank goodness. Woof. This is why we wanted you listeners to <laughs> listen to the whole episode before you have not uh, learned sharing, anything yet. <laughs> sharing anything. <laughs> Please. Yeah. So that's um so this is the earliest this is the this it's is the, the earliest early anthropological use of cargo cult. Okay. Um and so it's one that um it's it's one that is taking it is um shedding more light on the religious aspect. And so religious to this author's mind was Christianity. Christianity. Yeah. Like religion is Christianity. 
That's the one. That's there's one box That's to check. It. Yep. Religion. Check Christianity. And so thinking, and that it's, um, um, yeah, and it's and like that whole thing was quite pejorative. It sure was. It was very. I think. I mean, obviously, we're going to get into more uh more depth here that that will show that there's a lot more going on but basically this guy's take is just sort of like they don't like being missionaried and so they revolt and unless this horsetail weed is eradicated at the root and like this is a sign not that we should stop and leave them alone or we're like try to have this be like a collaborative relationship. Oh, we got to root out that pagan nonsense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, which is. That's tough. Which is like a. Um, I mean, this appeared in a colonial news magazine. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and like, that's mm-hmm. kind of the point. Yep. Oh, of that well. magazine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Twist. twist amber loves colonialism oh no the longest con (laughs) let's take a little bit of an ad break to recover from that for a minute and then we'll be back with other takes from a little bit later in time spoiler they're not better (laughs) it's chris webster again if you haven't checked out our new parent website culturalmedia.com then please do Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. All right. Well, we're back. And well, would you look at that? It's still bad takes o'clock. Mm. Um, so Just this time my watch kind of listen to it for a minute. Oh, it's still working. Um, this time we have moved ahead to 1959. Although the general attitude towards the cultures of Oceania is still stuck in 1850 something. Mm. <laughs> is that what people mean by island time? Oh, interestingly, <laughs> the period between 1956 and 1964 uh, was the peak of cargo cult research. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. This is probably because awareness of the phenomenon was pretty new and the Pacific Island region was still fresh from in the Western public consciousness. Um, this is also when tiki culture had hit its peak in the U.S., not a coincidence. So between 1956 and 1964, five important cargo ethnographies were published. Anthropologists had both ideas 
and opinions. Hmm. And I have a little theory that I have no evidence to back up, but here is Mm -hmm. my take um, that. So World War II ends 1945. Yes. You got a lot of, um, you got a lot of young men coming back and now they can go to school on the GI bill. How long does it take to get you through college and grad school and land a position? Mm, About eight to 10 years. So I wonder if people got their start by being exposed to the cultures themselves. By be it, yeah, by being in the military. Or, or maybe like firsthand, even like right. if you had a, a, a brother like, that came home or... Like witnessing something. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then being able to pursue study on the GI Bill. Yeah. Um, like, I wouldn't be surprised. And also you think about how long it takes you to sort of come back, go through school, get right, established, have money... Yeah. And then like that's when like tiki culture is like when it's enough time for people to get nostalgic. Yeah. That's my never theory. mind the never mind the horrors of war. This drink comes served in a volcano. Like, <sighs> we all know how that works on me. I know. I just become giddy. Like I I, th- I think that my reaction at tiki bars is like how people are supposed to act at Disney World. Yeah, I know. Right? I've seen it. I've seen it firsthand. <laughs> Yeah. So (laughs) this drink has smoke coming off it. (laughs) So um, these are a few excerpts from a May 1959 article in Scientific American. Although I will say it was it was republished in in like a retrospective. Like it was it was published in in 2009. They're like 50 years ago. And they're like they republished it, which, which is like a choice that Scientific American made. And. I don't, what I don't know is that if there was like in the original republication, if there was then like analysis of it or like this was bad, <laughs> this wasn't great. This wasn't our best work, but, uh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> but here, here are the, uh, the excerpts. Yeah. So <clears throat> quote, after four centuries of Western expansion, the densely populated central highlands of New Guinea remain one of the few regions where people still carry on their primitive existence in complete independence of the world outside. Uh. Yet, as agents of the Australian government penetrate into ever more remote mountain valleys, they find these backwaters of antiquity already deeply disturbed by contact with the ideas and artifacts of European civilization. For cargo... Pigeon English for trade goods and has long flowed along the indigenous channels of communication from the seacoast into the wilderness. With it has traveled the frightening knowledge of the white man's magical power. No small element in the white man's magic is the hopeful message sent abroad by his missionaries, the news that a Messiah will come and that the present order of creation will end. Troops on both sides in World War II found their arrival in Melanesia heralded as a sign of the apocalypse. The GIs who landed in, the GIs who landed in the New Hebrides, now Vanuatu, moving up for bloody fighting on uh, Guadalcanal, found the natives furiously at work preparing airfields, roads, and docks for the magic ships and planes they believed were coming from Roosevelt. Roosevelt, the friendly king of America. Uh, this would be the, the second one. FDR, not Teddy. 
Just to clarify. I was thinking about that and I was just like. (laughs) (laughs) But also I've been getting like one million ads for the like history channel. the Teddy Roosevelt. Scripted series about Teddy Roosevelt. And I'm just like. (laughs) So he had some stuff going on. (laughs) Sure did. He was not well. Continuing quote. Later, quote, Mm -hmm. in many coastal areas, the long history of blackbirding, the seizure of islanders for work on the plantations of Australia and Fiji. I know another word for that. Mm. Slavery. Is it it, it pronounced slavery? (laughs) Yes. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Enslavement. Yeah. Um, Had built up a reservoir of hostility to Europeans. Can't think why. In other areas, however, the arrival of the whites was accepted, even welcomed, for it meant access to bully beef and cigarettes, shirts and paraffin lamps, whiskey and bicycles. It also meant access to the knowledge behind these material goods, for the Europeans brought missions and schools as well as cargo. So, hey. My reservoir of hostility is slowly building as I listen to this. this. So this is like 15 years later. Yeah, from 1945. Yeah. And it's still extremely racist and like extremely othering and And infantilizing kind of infantilizing in a big way. And also polished in a, what should be, what, what positions itself as a scientific, uh, medium, Mm -hmm. not like a, not like a news, like a news rag sort of like, no, editorial but I mean, kind of thing. But like, this we know is, that science isn't objective. Yes, we also know that science can be very racistly done. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, that sucks. So there are two. Here are two exam- Two early examples. One sort of at the emergence of the phenomenon, and sort of a on the ground observation by, um, like colonial minded mm-hmm. um, writers and then 15 years later a um arguably they're still more, colonial mi- colonial minded removed, they're just they're but just like arguably now. more removed and therefore objective sort of mm. um uh. approach to it mm. that's how it's positioning itself the yeah. first is an observer the second is um an a researcher analyst. yeah yeah well now let's move on to part the third Stop, collaborate, and listen. Always view anthro takes with suspicion. I saw you, I witnessed you workshopping that line in yeah. like the Google Doc yesterday. Took me a while. <laughs> to I come was up very with tired. The right, the right bars. <laughs> yeah. I'm not good at rap. So, so far, I mean, arguably neither was Vanilla Ice, but you know. <laughs> hey, it worked out great for him. So happy for him. So, so far, this field of study is entirely racist and built on centuries of exploitation and infantilization of the people of Melanesia, which is also a term that is problematic. Uh, It's also very convenient or even enjoyable, possibly, for the white people on the other side of that belief of the cargo cult belief system, because they get to feel as if they're playing the part of the savior. And it's really easy to dismiss beliefs as foolish or primitive, especially when there is a longstanding tradition of viewing a lot of these cultures as primitive anyway. Well, and it's also really nice to think that like what you have is like 
so good. Like I am so blessed that there's someone on the other side of the world who thinks that like what I have is basically paradise and magic and sorcery. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like that kind of like feel good sort of, you know, like counting your blessings kind of attitude. Just have a, have a a long, hard sit with that listeners. Just think about it. Since we've been doing lots of callbacks to previous episodes lately, here's one more. We touched on similar ideas to this when we talked about the Birdman cult on Rapa Nui in episode 93. The short version is that the belief system surrounding the Birdman cult and ritual practices had to do with the existence of an unseen land beyond the water. And so when Europeans arrived on Rapa Nui, it seems to have confirmed that belief. All of a sudden, there are people arriving from beyond the horizon that you can see, and so must have come from somewhere. The material expression, including rock carvings of Birdman mythology and religion, hit its peak after the first European contact. And so in theory, that could be a coincidence. It's probably not. Yeah, but it is something that the Birdman cult existed anyway. And yeah. that this it wasn't was, because of and, and like, European so, contact. You know, um, um, I'm not saying all white people, but white people that tend to get in boats and claim things for other places sure. um, do tend to think of themselves as the main character in a situation. Mm-hmm. And, and so showing up and being like, oh, it was us. It was us. It was it was us. We did it. Ah, we're we're the saviors. Um, when in fact, it was like more about like birds and like seasonal, <laughs> like like sort of environmental clues for specific seasons in which things happen. Um, yeah, I just... And, it's and about we, birds. It's and really, we have... Really got um, um, and so when we were writing that episode, we had a little peek behind the curtain. Uh, we had a source that we found <sighs> that was um, it was published in The Culture Trip, which like isn't, isn't something that has like it's the tightest tourists. editorial. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's not for anthropologists. Um, yeah, and... Um, not that that would make it better as we see <laughs> but but it was something that was kind of like oh it's so kooky look at these like this is fun right it's fun um but then look at this um, fun ritual in writing yeah and like very leaning into like the it's ritual um but then mm-hmm. in preparing the episode i found what we ultimately used and quoted from in that episode which was something um which was uh, a description and sort of contextualization of the Birdman cult written by a Rapa Nui author. But, but it was something that shows like the, like, the, like a very different perspective because it's not, because it is written. Cause it's internal. It's yeah. 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 So it was a really great example of like, Oh, here's the difference. <laughs> like here's like, here, this is a very different tone, a very different approach. Yeah. And what I think the biggest thing about it is, um, the one the one that we ultimately used is one that does not position this as something that is fake yeah it was or, like this or is like um gimmicky yeah yeah like it's like it's it's something that isn't fiction it is something it is a real thing that people participate in and has deeply embedded meaning mm-hmm. and like that existed before meaning white people yeah and that exists outside of a a a single interaction can be folded into that experience and like like the wider expression sure yeah but it is not the 
the point or the impetus or even like the catalyst. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So, we, so we've been moving through time and now I want to try something. We sure have I, been. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I want to try something that, that might backfire, but specifically just for me, not in a way that's going to get us canceled or anything. Oh, no. Just like it Are might not happen. Irony? Ironic racism in the middle of our episode. Oh my God. No. Oh, that's why I was like, oh no. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. Exactly. No, it's just like, this might not turn out the way I think it's okay. going to, but okay. here's an excerpt of an article from Air Force Magazine, which is why I texted you the, the screenshot this morning. There was like a leaked yeah. Air Force memo about like bigger mustaches. They're coming. And that, that backfired too. Cause I was like, oh no. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's it not just, a backfire. I just threatening. Like, yeah. I don't know if there's a leaked memo. Like, about mustaches it just they can like, now be they, like a quarter inch longer i think are they, they weaponizing them <laughs> oh november is coming <laughs> so i i would like you to guess what year this oh, no. this article that i'm excerpting was written oh, um, no. I'm, I'm just i'm curious uh okay. since since we've had those past two examples we had 1945 okay. and 1959 so I'm, I'm going to read you this quote Again, from Air Force magazine, Western sociologists specializing in Melanesian religions say all the cargo cults are based on a curious mixture of native and Christian beliefs and rituals. The cultists believe their deities will send them ready-made goods, just like those used by the military forces that came from far away. In their estimation, the goods will come from heaven, thought by some to be in Australia or alternatively in the sky immediately above it. Those who hold to the latter view of paradise believe that heaven is joined to earth by a ladder, down which ancestral spirits carry the goods, packed in crates addressed to specific individuals. They expect that the precious cargo will come to them by ship, airplane, or truck, depending on where they live. End quote. So what year was this written, Amber? I'm going to say 2017. No. This was written in 1991. Ah. Uh-huh. Done. Yeah. Uh, so I think, okay. I think you approached your answer with a healthy amount of cynicism, just like expecting it to be just really disappointingly late. Um, and 1991 is extremely disappointingly <laughs> late for this slant, uh, yeah. to still be happening. Um, no. So yeah, I, I, I imagined that you would, you would guess way later than this actually was, I, but this is actually er- so. This is earlier than I would have thought. I would yeah, my 91. second guess was going to be during the Clinton administration. So I know I said 2017 because I was like, uh, maybe it was like super late. Um, but we can do another take where you say 1984. <laughs> that would be great for <laughs> no, me. No, I can do one and say 1995 if you want. <laughs> but no, okay. So I was thinking it would be one or the other, like either. Um, during either at the beginning of the Biden administration or during the Clinton administration, because um, I view those as two times where we want to seem a little less hawkish and a little yeah, less two times worry we starting wars, and, <laughs> starting yeah. or not ending wars. Uh, yeah. Mm. <laughs> like the, yep. Because of the ready-made goods, just like those, like that kind of idea of friendly America, positioning, posi- yeah, positioning the U.S. military as something that brings good things, yeah, and and, and a um, like a almost a humanitarian 
Yeah. Enterprise. Yeah, like a like a Captain America kind of good guy out mm-hmm. there, like helping people. Helping people. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are my thoughts in general. That's that what I a, took. I, that was my close reading on this, yeah. these two paragraphs no, that, was that a you good read str- to me. A good strategy. A strategy that worked. You just chose the wrong I chose the wrong administration. One. Yeah. Well, let's take one more quick ad break and then don't worry. It finally gets a little better. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com slash motion. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com slash shop. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop, and click on the link. We're back. And this time with part four, which we have entitled More Nuanced, Less Terrible Studies of Cargo Cults. Um, and so notice we didn't say not terrible, just less. Because, yeah, well, and also I am, as I've, I feel most people are starting to pick up one, I'm getting like increasingly cynical about <laughs> anthropology. Um, about sort of I think that's a good way to be about and not cynical necessarily but wary yeah and like just like ready to be disappointed just by anthropology and also coming at every research every piece of research that I encounter being like why are you doing this like what are like it's a good question to ask and you can ask it cynically or you can just sort of ask it kind of neutrally and then get mad about it Oh. <laughs> it depends on yeah. how much time you have, I guess. Yeah. Sure. Um, <laughs> so, so when we look at these, these sort of newer, so the past few years, mm-hmm. um, research that's been on and, and sort of discussions of uh, these, these movements, these religious movements, maybe we shouldn't call them cargo cults. Um, yeah. We need to think about the lens that is used, the lens through which we, the reader, Ah, you the listener. Um, and they, the authors, approach this. Um, are they doing a better job of not doing this racistly? Um, you notice what we haven't found and presented to you, listeners, is um, articles written by members of these communities. Yeah. Because <laughs> um, there aren't which, any yet. Which that also, find. that writing sort of excuses the author from not having indigenous interlocutors or sources or, mm-hmm. or it wouldn't, it doesn't beg the question like, where can I find more about this by them? Because it's sort of by implying that they're all so backward and primitive and like thinking that, well, they don't write articles. Planes, like planes are dropping things from heaven. Like, well, mm-hmm. of course they're not going to write an article. They can't be objective. They're no. too, they're, 
um, they're less civilized and somehow like with civilization comes introspection or something or the ability to be a reliable narrator. Yeah. And, and, you know, it has nothing to do with intellect or modernity or civilization. Uh, it has to do with belief systems. Yeah. So there is a lies trauma. There are religious movements and, um, religious movements or cultural movements or social movements that are happening. So now, Hmm. now Hmm. let's get into that. So Hmm. in more recent years, anthropologists have looked at uh, what we're calling cargo cults with more nuance. So the good news is that now we can talk about two specific examples without feeling quite as much a need uh, to take a shower afterward. Yeah. Yeah. So, the first example is the John Frum cult. Who is John Frum, you ask? No, this is not a uh, store brand Ayn Rand book. <laughs> um, as far as we know, there was no actual individual with that name. Uh, but John Frum is a mythic figure who is the center of a cargo cult on Vanuatu um, in the island of Tana. Mm-hmm. Is that? Yeah. So Vanuatu is like a, a cluster of islands mm-hmm. and this specific island is Tana. Tana. So we're um, going to spend this whole time on Tana, actually. Tana time. Tana time. So there are a couple different explanations for the origin of the mythology, which arose on, on Vanuatu sometime around the 1930s. Um, although some people claim as early as 1910. There was one. Yeah, I found yeah. one that was from the 30s. And said, actually, this started much earlier, but like, I had yeah. no way to back that up. And also, it seems very, it seems like it could very easily be like John from America. So here's another quote from Scientific American. Oh, no. Um, no, no, it's this. No. <laughs> this one's okay. Um, this time written by Paul Raffaele, who visited the island and talked to people. Huh. Uh, <laughs> talk to talk to local folks about their religion. Um, it's really interesting that you picked up on the John Frum as like a possible etymology because there's actually a really, really cool uh, possible etymology that we'll get to. So I want you to like get excited for that. I am. Okay, great. Um, side note, uh, Paul Raffaele uh, got absolutely blitzed on Kava and in his <laughs> words, quote, tried to pull the moon out of the sky and kiss it, end quote, uh, which sounds great. He, it sounded like he was he just had such a nice time. <laughs> Kava's a weird feeling. It's a weird feeling. I've I have not consumed kava, although there there's a large, um, that well I mean, large uh, Pacific Islander community in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and there are a few kava places. Yeah, um, there was one in in Davis when I lived there, and yeah, I tried it out. It made my brain feel weird. I don't know I, if it was for me. Haven't been, but it's like a very mm-hmm. social thing. So yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah so, um, quote, <laughs> local leaders say that John from first appeared one night in the late 1930s after a group of elders had downed many shells of Kava as a prelude to receiving messages from the spirit world. Um, so quote, 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 he was a white man who spoke our language and he didn't tell us then he was an American says chief Kahuya leader of Yakel Village, 
John Frum then told them he had come to rescue them from the missionaries and colonial officials. John told us that all Tana's people should stop following the white man's ways. He said we should throw away their money and clothes, take our children from their schools, stop going to church, and go back to living as as Kastom people. We should drink kava, worship the magic stones, and perform our ritual dances. Pause quote. Yes, pause quote. Uh, just also to say Kastom is, mm-hmm. is again like a... Uh, local pronunciation of custom and it it refers to just like living a good life like being a good person mm-hmm. and f- following certain prescribed things culturally that add up to custom like to be a custom person you have to do this do this do this and, and live your life a, so it's way. like a like a shit, like a social mores of yeah. just like how to live an upstanding life yes exactly um, okay I think yeah. so well, that's one yeah, for, for who John from is. Paul Raffaelli also offers this possibility. Resume quote. <laughs> Perhaps the apparition has more practical roots. It's possible that local leaders conceived of John from as a powerful white skinned ally in the fight against the colonials who were attempting to crush much of the Islanders culture and prod them into Christianity. In fact, that, view of the origins of the cult gained credence in 1949 when the island administrator, Alexander Rintoul, noting that from is the Tani's word pronunciation of broom, wrote that the object of John of the John from movement was to sweep or broom the white people off the island of Tana, end quote. Yeah, isn't that a cool thing? Oh, that is very, very Isn't cool. that neat? Yeah. I, I don't know for sure that that's like the explanation, but I like it as an explanation. Do love. I love this a lot. I love this idea a lot. I love. Broom them out of here. What a. (laughs) This is aspirational for me. And it's also just like such a better explanation than like. That was his name. Like yeah. that it actually has this like depth of meaning. Yeah. Is is so much cooler. Well, and it could be and it could be like multi-layered. Yeah. Like it could sure. have like it's like a multivalent name. Um mm. but oh, cool. Man. Again, aspirational. Mm. I want to be a John from <laughs> not as like the 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 <laughs> no, not as like a colonial point of like no. a, a religious movement, just as like somebody like coming in and being like Get out. Do not trust these people. Um, in a way, I am. So in this context, cargo cults are like much more interesting and much less racist uh, than, you know, simple backwards natives worshiping the white man who brought them cool stuff, um, mm. which is like is something that like, again, white guys who get on boats have it been doing us. for like 600 years of being like, yep. well, here's some stuff. And, and they'd be like, oh, they love the stuff. And it's like, well, we own their land now. It's like, well, you also had guns. But it was, yeah. And, and so just like that. Um, so this interpretation gives the, the Tana Islanders agency, taking the familiar image of American or allied soldier and using it as a rallying point. The white soldier who brought useful materials and food and other goods to the island is a more friendly, although still problematic, character than the white colonist or the missionary of centuries past. Um, there's like, I guess there's like a better, uh, a better sense of like them getting something out of it. 
Yeah, um, it's still I guess, like something material. Like it is, it is yeah. a material relationship rather than yes. like quite immaterial, like sort of spiritual relationship that that you know missionaries are trying to provide. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Um. So. Speaking of missionaries and religion, which I often am, um, Raffaele ends the article on an astute note that we thought was a really good counterpoint to the extreme othering of cargo cults that we saw in those earlier articles. So he asks a local leader, John promised you much cargo more than 60 years ago and none has come. So why do you keep faith in him? Why do you still believe in him? Uh, Chief Isaac shoots me an amused look. You Christians have been waiting 2,000 years for Jesus to return to earth, he says, and you haven't given up hope. Yeah. Yup. Good point, Isaac. And also, put a pin in that, folks, for my mm. last point that I will be mm. saying of just sort of, um, who, like, who's, who's mislaid faith in something is mislaid and what Indeed. is just, uh, enduring. Mm. So as one more example, let's take a look at the Prince Philip movement. So first things first, Prince Philip, recently deceased British royal, consort of Queen Elizabeth II, Duke of Edinburgh, lived a couple months short of 100, noted racist. Okay. One of the best Great. to ever do it. One of the just... Champ. Just... <laughs> Reigning champion, literally. Yes. <laughs> hey. Uh, so... A small community, also on Tana in Vanuatu, believes Philip to be the brother of John Frum. And so their belief system revolves around him instead of just John Frum. So this belief arose before the British royals ever even visited the island, but they did do so in 1974. And Philip's presence solidified his... Yep, it's rough. Philip's presence there solidified his status among the people there as a deity. Uh, when he was made aware of his promotion, Philip arranged for a photograph of himself to be sent to the islanders. They reciprocated by sending him a traditional pig-killing club, requesting that he photograph himself with it. He did, posing in front of Buckingham Palace. And then other official photos were sent in, in later years. 2007, that photo I believe, was a photo year of so him with goofy. the big stick. Yeah. It's so goofy. He's like, just it's like, just, what do I do with this? Uh, yeah. And, and so the, there's, I think in this, there's the photo of the, the two individuals in the community, like holding mm-hmm. up the photo. That holding is, up like, that photo. Yeah. And it's just like these, like these two men just like looking normal, holding a photo yep. of an extremely not normal man. <laughs> just, <laughs> just like kind of off center. Just like really. Oh. Like, <laughs> just received like, this from Vanuatu. Jolly good. And, but like, and so that and like the photos of the, the royals there, it's just like, this is silly. It's like just so silly. Monarchy. Monarchy is silly. silly. With the Duke of Edinburgh's death, the members of the Prince Philip movement are in a period of formal mourning. This is from writer Tessa Wong at the BBC. Quote, for the next few weeks. So this was, yeah, this was when he mm-hmm. died. Like when last he died. year. Mm-hmm. Right. The 9th of April, 2021. Time yeah, flies. So he died last year. Gosh. Um, you were thinking of the queen. <laughs> she's, she's, she might be dead. For the, quote, <laughs> for the next few weeks, villagers will periodically meet to conduct rites for the Duke, who is seen as a recycled descendant of a very powerful spirit or god that lives on one of their mountains, says <laughs> anthropologist Kirk Huffman, who has studied the tribe since the 1970s. Which isn't a wrong way to describe the British monarchy. <laughs> Recycled descendants. 
They will likely conduct ritualistic dance, hold a procession, and display memorabilia of Prince Philip, while the men will drink kava, a ceremonial drink made from the roots of the kava plant. This will culminate with a significant gathering as a final act of mourning. There will be a great deal of wealth on display, which would mean yams and kava plants, says Vanuatu-based journalist Dan McGarry. And then this is from further along in the article. The villagers live in Tana's jungles and continue to practice their ancestral customs. Wearing traditional dress is still common, and while they maintain strong links with society, money and modern technology, such as mobile phones, are seldom used within their own community. Though they live only several kilometers from the nearest airport, they just made an active choice to disavow the modern world. It's not a physical distance, it's a metaphysical distance. End quote. If modern society meant centuries of enslavement slash exploitation yeah you'd say no thank you yeah exactly Mm. and like indeed they did part of what's happening there yeah so the origins of the movement aren't clear but again just as with john from there are a couple possibilities one is that villagers may have seen philip's picture alongside the queen's inside buildings of colonial outposts just just to remind you where you know when you're british abroad you gotta remember who your monarchs are um this also may have been a reaction to colonial presence in the same way that John Frum was meant to sweep away ties to the colonial world. By associating themselves with the guy who sat next to the ruler of a huge colonial power, it's possible that the villagers were reclaiming some of that power. Yeah. Hmm. Which makes all of this much more interesting than Indeed. um than what than than what What uh, simple uh, natives. Yeah. So it's much much more interesting than that. To bring us on home, um, I want to share just a couple examples of how cargo cult as a phrase has come into the English vernacular uh, and whether it's appropriate or not to have done so. So mm. the first thing I'm going to use is something that became, so I'll have the whole thing linked in the show notes, but uh, Richard P. Feynman, physics Surely man? you must be joking, Mr. Feynman. Physics man, yeah. Physicsman. Physicsman. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he delivered a commencement address to the uh, Caltech class of 1974. And there's a bit of like casual sexism in it, which is just really. Mm. I think mm. he might have just been like that. I think he might have. <laughs> so it's um, so I'm going to read. Um, so the whole thing. So this address has been known since as cargo cult science um and so i'm going to uh read an excerpt in which he puts forward this kind of this this thought um and you can read the rest of it if you want and his weird sexism um quote I think the educational and psychological studies I mentioned are examples, so he's talking about pseudoscience, are examples of what I would like to call cargo cult science. In the South Seas, there is a cargo cult of people. During the war, they saw airplanes land with lots of good materials and they want the same thing to happen now. So they have arranged to make things like runways, to put fires along the sides of the runways, to make a wooden hut for a man to sit in with two wooden pieces on his head like headphones and the bars of bamboo sticking out like antennas. He's the controller. And they wait for the airplanes to land. They're doing everything right. The form is perfect. It looks exactly the way it looked before, but it doesn't work. 
no airplanes land. So I call these things cargo cult science because they follow all the apparent precepts and forms of scientific investigation, but they're missing something essential because the planes don't land. Now, it behooves me, of course, to tell you what they're missing, but it would be just about as difficult to explain to the South Sea Islanders how they have to arrange things so they get some wealth in their system. It is not something simple like telling them how to improve the shapes of the earphone, the shapes, yeah, the shapes of the earphones. But there is one feature I notice that is generally missing in cargo cult science. That is the idea that we all hope you have learned in studying science in school. We never explicitly say what this is, but just hope that you catch on by all the examples of scientific investigation. It is interesting, therefore, to bring out, bring it out now and speak of it explicitly. It's a kind of scientific integrity, a principle of scientific thought that corresponds to a kind of utter honesty, a kind of leaning over backwards. For example, if you're doing an experiment, you should report everything that you think might make it invalid, not just what you think is right about it, in other causes that could possibly explain your results, and things you thought, things you thought of that you've and things you thought of that you've eliminated by some other experiment and how they worked to make sure the other fellow can tell they have been eliminated. Oh, so like a good methods and results section. Yeah, exactly. In your like paper. doing doing good thorough science that like isn't hung up on the result that yeah, you're looking that's, for. That's yeah. experimentally sound. Yeah. Yeah. Details that could throw doubt on your interpretation must be given if you know them. You must do the best you can. If you know anything at all wrong or possibly wrong to explain it, if you make a theory, for example, and advertise it or put it out, then you must also put down all the facts that disagree with it, as well as those that agree with it. There is a more there's also a more subtle problem. When you have put a lot of ideas together to make an elaborate theory, you want to make sure when explaining what it fits, that those things it fits are not just the things you that gave you the idea for the theory, but that the finished theory makes something else come out right in addition. In summary, the idea is to try to give all of the information to help others to judge the value of your contribution, not just the information that leads to judgment in one particular direction or another, end quote. And that, and then he goes on for several more minutes. But like this idea of, um, does that like, does that like make, it's make kind sense? of encouraging that, you know, this was in what? 1974. Yeah. It's kind of encouraging that, I don't know, just the idea of, I think the idea of sound methodology and just good scientific reporting has become much more commonplace. Like he's introducing it here. Like it's like, you may not have heard of this, but yeah, he's saying like, nobody has ever told you this explicitly that we just hoped you'd pick up on it kind of thing, which is a good point that that's like, I've taught methods, scientific methods, components and i do say it explicitly yeah so like I, but but i think i was taught explicitly so i i'm just saying like since 1974 i think yeah. maybe the practice of well maybe actually, the people maybe his this the recipients of that commencement address yes he's on. the guy he's the white guy on the ship it was <laughs> but but this idea of like when you don't do that or when you have your um, when you have your conclusion leading your experiment and that's what gets into pseudoscience. Yeah. And, that way pseudoscience and doing lies. like yeah. the theater of science being like, I am doing an the experiment and, yeah. and you're, you're doing all these things, but you're not actually, <laughs> but you're really that stock photo of the guy injecting dye into a sheep skull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so that's, and so that's the kind of, um, so 
this is a the, the, like Feynman introduced a new term for like a, a, new, a new use of mm. of cargo cult as cargo cult science and this idea of um, going through the motions, getting the thing that you that, like in hopes that you will get the thing that you want. It's, um, it's a step you up don't from kind of superstition, it. right? Almost yeah. because because it's like, you know, athletes you know, put on their lucky underpants and tighten their glove three times and, and like wiggle their nose a certain way when they're, you know, when they're at bat or yeah. whatever. And and in the hopes that they did that one time and hit a home run and then all other times they're just hoping the same thing happens. Um, yeah. So where does well, this yeah. fit in with, with cryptocurrency? Well, um, well, I have a, a bit of a segue oh. that, that's getting, or that will be, we'll be taking the, the moving walkway to that point. Mm, mm-hmm. um, so also in the show notes is um, a, a book that's on JSTOR that is open access. Hooray. Thanks, Lamont Lindstrom. Um, written by Lamont Lindstrom um, in 1993. So that was the person who wrote that um, anthropology encyclopedia um, entry, entry on it. Yeah. Uh, and so the and last... Only two years after that Air Force magazine article. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this, the last chapter of the book is called, I think like cargo cults everywhere or something. And, um, Oh, it is. So this yeah. is, is it chapter six? Yeah. yeah. So I'm just, nope. I'm just reading the opening lines to sort of mm-hmm. bring it back to crypto. Outbreaks of the cargo cult continue, although strangely not so much anymore in Melanesia. Cargoism has percolated out of these islands into the wider world. Nowadays, almost anyone anywhere might be a cargo cultist. This is not much of a puzzle, of course. Cargo cult, as a term, has proved both useful and provocative. Anthropologists, along with other observers of human hope and folly, find a language of cargo cult productive. They extend the term to describe cult-like ritual and cargo-like beliefs worldwide. In these descriptive extensions... Melanesia unwittingly donates its cargo cult to us all. And so this is um, a metaphor. Yeah. So, and this is where I come back to cryptocurrency. Yeah. So, um, so Bitcoin has been around for about 12, uh, for a decade now. Um, mm. So it, 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 it started happening. Cryptocurrency started happening in 2012. And I know this because I went on a horrible first date with someone who proceeded to explain Bitcoin to me mm. in, at great length. So, mm. <laughs> Um, Mm. and, and so it's something that has, um, so cryptocurrency and the blockchain had meteoric rise in popularity. And as we, perhaps without people understanding fully what they are. Exactly. That is the point. Mm. Um, and that, that's why I'm the co-host. host. (laughs) And, and so, and blockchains especially, and I tried finding like some people like talking about this, but Talking about it as a cargo cult or mm-hmm. just... To- and curiously, mm. the things that I found, they're like, uh, they're like, yeah, blockchain is a cargo cult. Blah, 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 blah. But it's actually great. And if we know how it works, then again, I was just like, no. So, <laughs> no nope. Oh, no. Nope. So, yeah, I only found, I only found it discussed by pro crypto folks, um, which I think is a separate issue of people like not, people either are all about it or they like reject it utterly. Um, and there aren't people who understand it critically. They like understand it and don't like it. Um, right. and I have tried to become one of the latter group. Um, 
which recently at work, we were talking about how like we don't have enough people on our team who like know the tech industry and and like we should because we work with it and mm-hmm. I did not offer myself as the person who actually does know things about the tech industry idea. but I don't like it <laughs> so, yeah I think um, I think that was the and right so approach you for see you. some of and so I have seen this in at work like in mm-hmm. the communities that we work with of people who don't understand the greater systems within which the blockchain happens. And so the blockchain is um, simply put a, um, a, a very uh, specific transaction that takes place that, that has a signature and it is something that um, it's, you know, this is all, God, I don't like, I even like read about it all the time and I still like don't totally understand it because I don't understand the internet. And so it's something that is, um, it, it is a unique ID that is generated through a specific transaction that takes place by computing machines. The things ID is, is the commodity. Exactly. The the, the unique identifier. The the commodity, like the thing that is, that is, is being consumed. The thing that is, is for sale is, proof that this is the thing that you say it is and that it's unique and that it is unique yeah that it is just the one and so this is something that you know it's really like come up like that like people know about it from nfts which like can't fund those became which which began as like something a bit less cynical in the art world as a way to like actually let artists be compensated for their work and have like authenticity confirmed but it's also big in the like in healthcare and in immigration and mm-hmm. and things like that where your identity and yeah. like the, these things that like a, like a social security number yeah like those are things that are that are they're trying to think about putting them on the blockchain and so this is also something where cryptocurrency comes in because you want right. to be able to prove that the money that like, the, the, is it is the, what you say it is. It's worth is, what you yeah. say it's worth. Yeah. Um, but people don't understand how the wider systems work. They don't or, understand like where how, the value comes from. They don't understand that, but they also don't understand that. There's like a fundamental misunderstanding of what happens when you have something that's unregulated. It means that Mm. you like all your apes can be gone, but also um, not understanding how Bitcoin, how mining works for it and the amount of energy that it takes, like for um, the servers, what happened in Kazakhstan um, earlier, like in January, the, um, the, the political situation in Kazakhstan was, um, catalyzed if nothing else by that that nation's like heavy investment in crypto mining and the impact that it has on others like el salvador's el salvador is like wrapped up in crypto and so you have these things that like people are and then when you start getting things like governments involved and like and brands and things like people who super don't know anything about it but this is sort of a but want to exploit it. And you've got, you know, Matt Damon making a, a like and Larry David, like making ads for cryptocurrency. It oh becomes boy. like this theater 
Like this is a theater of wealth and a theater of wealth accumulation. So in, in the same way that it's sort of a theater of science is doing performative work to establish believability without necessarily actually having the depth of knowledge that would produce well, or a when good you have, experiment. When you have an idea, so when you have a theory, like perhaps ghosts are real and then you mm. do science you you do your scientific experiments that you have like featured on national geographic channel and like, <clears throat> you are doing science and you you think that you're doing a you're taking the scientific method but, no, but you're trying you're, to prove something this is like the you're, you're like like the tail wagging the dog kind of thing of like the, like you're yeah, the, leading with your conclusion. Yeah, you're, and so the conclusion people, leading the experiment. Yeah. In, in crypto, you have a lot of people who are leading with the conclusion that this is a way to generate wealth. And now, as we've seen in in recent weeks with um, with Lu- with Terra and Luna, the, which was a, which was a stable coin, which it has stabilized to nothing. Um, like when mm. you see like, these. Um, so it's it's called being unpegged when you've got these these coins being unpegged and then they 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 can just like plummet yeah, um, they have because no they are it's it it is sort of to a certain extent like most economies it's kind of a faith based measure of like everybody yeah. agreeing that this is that this has value yeah and so with that you even you even see then like this has not stopped the the crypto bros and Broesses out there. Um, and, and, and so because it is, because it is currency, <laughs> just wait, that's going to be something that, <laughs> yeah, that I have that, to, that, like, that a hashtag girl that I have, no, that I have out? to like feature at work soon. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> um, but, but so in that, that I, that conversation about, um, John from, uh, and just like, well, like you've been waiting on him for 60 years. Like when, like, why do you, why are you still waiting? And why haven't you given like, up Well, yet? you've been waiting for Christ for 2000. Like, um, what's your, but deal? this idea of just like, why should, why should these guys, like, why should these people Keep like waiting for bail out? Because it's, you the, know, it's like yeah. for them, there's like the very, there's like the very immediate material reasons, but also, think about the material reasons that other people have invested in things. Yeah. Um, they're waiting you, for the, you know, to, to bring it home with a metaphor. They're waiting for their ship to come in. Yeah. Hey. Oh, like that, like that very sad Colin Hay song. Sure. Oh, I'll send it to you. It's a very Great. good song. It makes I me look cry. forward to being sad about it. Um, but, but that, that, and so I wanted to bring that up at the end because mm, so, really so much of the narrative around, um, cargo cults is based in sort of backwardsness and primitivism, like in, and, and sort of gullibility and, and the so, external thinking about cargo yeah, cults. Yeah. just that, yeah. that, like, that is like the discussion of it and that it's seen as like, it's this like oh, silly isn't this thing. weird? Silly. And, um, but actually, <laughs> so it's, it's sort of, it is both not as silly as, as it is presented. And also there are other things that we don't have to go to like Oceania to find examples of this thinking. No, and, it's, and it's kind of, of human, you know? Well, and, and also a lot of these are um, reflective of people who are in um, circumstances in which they have limited agency trying to create a narrative that, that 
gives, gives them, them hope. some. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's a way to like take, take agency mm-hmm. and, and like assume some agency over your immediate life and your immediate circumstances, but also, um, give you a sense of hope that it could improve yeah. or it could change for the better. Um, and so I am really glad that I know that this is a thing now. It's a thing. And I'm glad that we did this episode because I, it's really interesting. And I'm so listeners, now you can share with your <laughs> friends and colleagues and coworkers. Now you can have. Now you can say you learned something. Yes. Um, and we're so glad that you listened to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And we will be back next week in your ears with new content. Yeah. We've already recorded the next one. And new and voices. And new Someone voices. New. We got a friend in town. Who's it going to be? Um, which you can find along with all of our other episodes anywhere that you get your podcasts. And also on thedirtpod.com. We have all of our back episodes. And you can also find us on social media. We are The Dirt Podcast on Facebook. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we are at The Dirt Pod. And all of those come together into the feed at thedirtpod.com so you could just go there for all your needs all your dirt related needs got merch got our modular syllabus that i super duper need to update and so much more and thank you everyone we love you goodbye goodbye This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.